Belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for August 28, 2022 is called How Not to Contend for the Faith. The speaker is John Ray, and it was recorded on Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Good morning, everybody. My name is John Ray. Um, Again, really glad you're here at Grace Church with us. Um, If you are visiting, it's not normally that uh, enthusiastic this morning. We were trying out something new, so um, hope you enjoyed that. (laughs) I know I did. That was awesome. So we are starting today a short section that we're going to look at this fall where we're going to go through the books of Jude, 1st and 2nd. Peter with this. And you may think, well, why are we including Jude with First and Second Peter? But I think it'll become evident that there's a lot of similar thematic element and even some similar vocabulary between Jude specifically and Second Peter. And a lot of people say when we were preparing and reading the commentaries, they were like, you, you really need to read these together for the full effect of what the authors are getting at. So we're going to start with Jude this morning. And we're looking at this, um, this question of how not to contend for the faith. Because a lot of times it's easier to learn how not to do something, right? Like we quickly learn if something doesn't work. It may, it may take a while to find out what does work, but just like trying to hammer in a screw, you can quickly learn, hey, this is not the way we're supposed to be doing this thing. And we're going to look at some things today that might seem quite obvious how not to do something. But the truth is, it's hard sometimes to resist those things. It's hard sometimes when someone who comes with um, powerful speech or a lot of resources and they, and they make no room for dissent, and they, and they just shout, and they shout, and they shout louder until you're just finally like, okay, whatever, fine, have it your way. And the author of Jude is saying we must resist that, that there is a way to contend for the faith, and there is a way not to contend for the faith. So that's what we're going to look at. Um, the other thing about this that we're studying together in you know, I had my first week teaching um, Old Testament survey this week, which has been really encouraging, but also daunting. But the the kind of the mantra for the class is we look at the Old Testament, but look at all Scripture together, is that we have to remember that Scripture was written in community for community. Especially those of us that grew up in, in the evangelical culture who were taught so often that finding uh, your way as a matter of you alone with Jesus and your Bible and maybe a Bible study or something and that you had to do this by yourself. That, that is such a modern invention. And, and a, this isn't in my notes, but I, I just it was really eye-opening for the class when I reminded them that the idea that, that you would have a personal copy of Scripture. How many of you in here have a personal copy of the Bible? Right? How many of you have multiple copies? Okay, so most Christians who ever lived throughout history, that was not the case. Think about that. For almost 2,000 years of Christian history, the individual believer 
would not have owned a copy of Scripture, much less even held one with that. That the deliverance, the, the study of, the engagement with the Bible almost always took place in a community setting, a church setting, a, a, a group setting with that. And so we need to remember that, that having the individual Bible for an individual quiet time, while not bad, I want you to do that. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just saying don't only do that. As a matter of fact, the primary way that we are designed to understand Scripture is in community with that. So, and I, and I said it earlier in the prayer, and it's something that's just been going on in my head, is, you know, as a church, as we're, as we're moving forward and we're making decisions, we have to stop thinking of ourselves as consumers in an economy and start thinking of ourselves, again, as organisms in an ecosystem. So, l- just a little bit of background on, on uh, the book, this is, uh, this is called Jude, but Jude is just a nickname for Judas. There's a lot of Judases in the New Testament, at least eight different Judas. Of course, the, the most nefarious, Judas Iscariot, the one, Iscariot that gets the bad rap. But then there was Judas the Zealot, who was one of Jesus' disciples. That's not who this is. This is Judas, the brother of James, the half-brother of Jesus, which is interesting that Jesus' siblings don't really appear in prominence until after Jesus death and ascension, but it kind of makes sense when you think about how often we fail to see the truth of those that are closest to us. Have you ever had that experience where you have a friend who's famous kind of outside of your social circle, but you're like, yeah, but that's, I mean, that's just Shannon. Like, like they're not famous to me. I know they're famous to everybody else, right? Like, and, and I think that was probably the way it was with Jesus' siblings. Like, even as he's doing the miracles and stuff, they're like, yeah, but that was, like, I knew Jesus when he was eight, you know? So he may have been, he may have been a little different, but until we get perspective, we don't really see things. So this is Jude who is writing this. Um, the genre of this is, it's, it's written in some ways like an epistle, but really it's not to a specific congregation. We understand that epistles in the New Testament that name names were to a specific congregation or group. This is what's called a general epistle. We could think of it almost like a tract. This was something that was written to be widely distributed to a variety of people, maybe not even personally knowing those people. But the audience that it is written for, it's pretty clear from the context and the references that the audience was of a Jewish background. There is a ton of reference to the Old Testament here, even some apocryphal books that we know that, that, that whoever wrote this, or when Jude wrote this, um, that they were thinking of those from a Jewish background who had come to embrace the way of Jesus with that. So why was it written? Why was it written? Why, why are these words written? We can deduce, from the, again, from the content that right out of the gate there was tension in the church. Now, again, I think sometimes we're taught to believe that there was some golden age of the church. That there was a time when the church just ran smooth. Everybody loved each other. Everybody got along with each other. Everybody took care of everybody else's needs. And man, if we want to be a right church, we just need to be a New Testament church. That's kind of the the shorthand for that golden age or that perfect church. Y'all, 
everything that's written in the New Testament almost is meant to address problems within that New Testament church, to address conflicts, stumbling blocks, ways that they were going out of bounds with that. There's never been a golden age of the church. There's never been a time where we just got the sauce just right. And that now for 2,000 years after that, you know, it's just a constant practice of, man, if we could just get back, if we could just get back, if we could just get back. That kind of nostalgic thinking is really detrimental. It's not real. There's always been conflict. There's always been tension in the church. We are always having to come. And here's the thing, that's not bad. That doesn't mean that they messed up necessarily. It just means they were the humans that God was calling together in the church in that time and place, and they had to deal with their stuff together. Just like we have to deal with our stuff together right now with that. And one of the things that will sidetrack us is if we think that there's some golden age, like I said, we, we think nostalgically that there was some golden age when everything was just perfect and all we have to do is get back to that. That is not the case. And so the, the big idea here in this, in this letter is that contending for the faith is an essential aspect of the Christian walk. It's a call not just to fix a problem so that everything will be perfect, but it's a call to an ongoing attitude towards these things. To the instilling of an ongoing ethos of how to resolve conflict, how to work through tension, how to continually reorient yourself back to the truth of the faith so that inevitably when the conflict arises, you'll know how to respond. And what that does is it takes this letter out of being a time-bound piece of history, a historical document, and makes it alive for us today. Because y'all, we're still dealing with this stuff. And we're going to see here quickly that we can't fight fire with fire. And we can't fight all by ourselves. We have to reject the assumptions, the postures, the ways and the means of those who are disruptive, of those who go their own ways. We must not try, try to sow discord for our own personal gain. So let's read the text. Jude, we, it, it's literally the, the whole book is one chapter um, with this. And I'm going to read from the message. We looked at a couple different versions in our teaching team. And really the message kind of gets it really well with this one. So if you want to follow along, I'm reading from the message, or you can read from the version you have. It says, I, and we're, we're going to pause along the way and make some comments with this. So I, Jude, am a slave to Jesus Christ and, brothers, and brother to James, writing to those loved by God the Father, called and kept safe by Jesus Christ. I love this. Relax. Everything's going to be all right. Rest. Everything's coming together. Open your hearts. Love is on the way. Now, if there is not a more countercultural invitation to addressing conflict than to start by relaxing, I don't know what there is. Our whole media economy would collapse if the latest talking head pundit on Choose Your Network of Your Choice started off the evening news by breaking news, 
relax, y'all. It's all going to be okay. Right? Like, how different is that than the constant churn of tension, the constant invitation, nay, command to be scared? The constant indoctrination that you don't have enough, that bad things are happening, that you need to be on your guard, that you need to dial up, dial up the tension, dial up the anxiety, get ready, bad things are happening, you need to get ready to fight. That constant drumbeat is killing us, y'all. It's overloading our nervous systems. We can't handle it individually or collectively. And we see right from the start here, the instruction to anything that we're going to address, that's hard. He's not, listen, we're going to get into some hard stuff, but it starts with, relax, y'all. Relax. It's all going to be all right. So, he goes on, dear friends, I've dropped everything to write to you about this life of salvation that we have in common. I have to write insisting, begging that you fight with everything you have for this faith entrusted to you. But we already know, hey, he said relax, so this fight's got to be a different kind of fight. Right? Sometimes we jump right to this. We go, oh, fight. Oh, there's, there's the cue. There it is. There it is again. Okay, now i got to get anxious again. No, 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 no. Remember, we're starting. We're starting from relax. We're starting from it's all going to be okay. Everything's coming together. So this, this fight has to be a different kind of fight. So what's he talking about here? For you to fight with everything you have that this faith entrusted to us as a gift to guard and to cherish. So, so we may be tempted to think, if okay, if I'm not going to fight, then I just don't do anything. Then relax just means don't try. But that's not what he's saying either. And this is one of the hardest concepts for us to get, and we've talked about it throughout our history as Grace Church, is that grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Listen, yes, we do have to work. Faith doesn't just happen. Faith is this weird mix, this mysterious mix of both being a gift, something that we don't generate in ourselves, something that is given to us, but also then something we have to nurture, that we have to intentionally work at. So faith has to be intentional. It's something that we're working towards with that. But we're doing it from a very different way. And in one of the constant discussions that I have when people are say they're looking for a church or they, they're just dissatisfied with their church or what they want in a church is, is you'll, they'll say, I want an organic church. Anybody heard that? Man, and they'll use words like authentic, organic, things like this. And um, I agree 100%. Actually, I am pro-organic church. I want 100% shade-grown, slave-free, fair-trade church. Somebody make me a t-shirt. It says that. Here's the problem. When most people say that, when they say organic, what they really mean is easy. What they really mean is I don't want to have to work at it. I just want it to kind of land in my lap. I want it to just kind of fall off a tree. 
Now, I don't know how many of you in here are farmers or, or deal with agricultural stuff, but if you talk to an organic farmer, the first thing they're going to tell you is that organic farming is much harder than industrial farming. Is that organic farming takes much more work than industrial farming. It's incredibly difficult. Organic farming has a less of a yield of fruit than industrial farming. Indust in organic farming, you can't force a crop. You have to wait. You have to wait until it is in season. You can't grow it 12 months out of the year. You can't force it to fruit according to your marketing schedule. You have to wait for it to come with that. But the benefits to me far outweigh because organic fruit tastes better. It has more nutrients. It is more disease resistant. It's more resilient. You get more variety. And it will flourish longer than the industrial fruit, than the industrial farmed fruit. So when we talk about this and we, and, we, and we look at this and you say, hey, I want an organic church, I'm with you. Just understand what that means. I believe that the organic fruit, the, the fruit of an organic church, is, is, it tastes better. I believe that there's more variety to it. I believe that it's more resilient. I believe that it's more resistant with that. But one thing it's not is easy. It's not easy with that. So, um, let's go on. So, verse 4. What has happened is that some people have infiltrated our ranks. Our scriptures warned us about this. That's, that's what happened. And again, our scriptures here, he's obviously re referring to what we call the Old Testament because the New Testament church didn't have a Bible. They didn't have the New Testament. Who beneath their pious skin are shameless scoundrels. Their design is to replace the sheer grace of God with sheer license, which means doing away with Jesus Christ, the one and only master. Now, y'all, it is hard here not to draw specific connections to our own time, which I'm not going to do if I can help it. What we need to see here is the deceivers here were not preaching against Jesus. They weren't coming into the church saying, hey, this is all BS. There is no God. There is no Jesus. No, they were coming in saying, hey, we, we know the truth about Jesus. If you're really a Christian, this is the way you have to behave. It wasn't that they were preaching no Jesus. They were preaching a different Jesus. A toxic Jesus with this. That in truth is no Jesus at all. He goes on to say, I'm laying this out as clearly as I can, even though you once knew all this well enough and shouldn't need reminding. Here it is in belief. And listen, y'all, we all need reminding. You can take that as a scold or you can take that just as a statement of fact. I need reminding. We all need reminding. Um, the master saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Later he destroyed those who, def who defected. As you know the story of the angels who did not stick to their post, abandoning it for other darker missions. But they are now chained and, and, and jailed in black hole until the great judgment day. Sodom and Gomorrah, which went to sexual rack and ruin along with the surrounding cities that acted just like them, are another example. Burning and burning and never burning up. They, still stir, they serve still as a stock warning. 
This is exactly the same program of these latest infiltrators. Dirty sex, rules and rulers thrown out, glory dragged in the mud. Now again, he's dealing, on, he's dealing with specific instances here. And I want, to, I want to be careful to say here, because I think a lot of us who, again, who, who grew up within a certain culture, as soon as we start talking about sexual sin, as soon as we start talking about throwing out the rules, we, our minds instantly kind of go to the licentiousness, the, the parroting or the, the um, making, making just examples, caricatures, out of people who don't follow our own personal, pure sexual mores with that. That is not what is happening here. These are people who are saying they're leaders within the church. So they are not the ones who are out there in the streets partying in their underwear, for for lack of a better way to describe it. These, These are the people who are saying they are pure, who say they are saying they are performing this way, and yet they are not at all. They are engaged in terrible things and using their power to cover it up, using their hypocrisy to say that it's not happening with that. And that's a very different way to think about this. But he goes on. And he goes, even the archangel, archangel Michael, who went to the mat with the devil as they fought over the body of Moses. Now, if that sounds crazy and you haven't read it in your Bible, you haven't, okay? It comes from Jewish folklore, where Michael fought over the body of Moses, okay? That, that's, that's, a, that's outside of the thing. But the writer here just assumes that everybody knows it. The writer assumes that the Jewish context, that that would have been a, a story that they were all familiar with. Um, he wouldn't dare level him with a blasphemous curse, but said simply, no, you don't. God will take care of you. But these things sneer at anything they can't understand. Boy, talk about it. Wow. Again, I'm trying not hard, hard not to draw specific stuff, but think of those who, who are presented with a philosophy or a doctrine or a construct or a historical way of looking at our understanding history, and they sneer at it because they can't understand it, or better, maybe even don't want to understand it. By doing whatever they feel like doing, living by animal instinct, only they participate in their own destruction. He says, I'm fed up with them. They're going down, Cain's road. They've been sucked into Balaam's error by greed. They're canceled by Korah's religion. So if you ever want to look at bad things happening to people doing bad stuff, there's like three examples right there you can look at. These people are warts on your love feast. Boy, that's a gross analogy, isn't it? There are warts on your love feast as you worship and eat together. They're giving you a black eye, carousing shamelessly, grabbing anything that isn't nailed down. They're puffs of smoke, pushed by gusts of winds, late autumn trees, stripped clean of leaf and fruit, doubly dead, pulled up by roots, wild ocean waves, leaving nothing on the beach but their foam of their shame, lost stars in outer space on their way to a black hole. Whoo! He's on it, isn't he? Man. I mean... It's, it's like you're, you're like, uh, so do you tell me how you really feel? <laughs> you don't have to ask that question. He is letting you know the seriousness of what's going on. And then he goes on, and here's an interesting, again, here's a, an interesting uh, 
quote from the Apocrypha, right? He tells his story. He says, Enoch, the seventh of Adam, prophesied, look, the master comes with thousands of holy angels to bring judgment against all, convicting each person of every defiling act of shameless sacrilege. Interesting here, sacrilege that he brings up, not in the context of temple, not in the context of religious worship, but in the context of community. A sacrilege to behave in a certain way within the context of community. Um, of every dirty word they have spewed of their pious filth. And then this one's great, right? They are grumpers. <laughs> they are grumpers. The belly acres, grabbing for the biggest piece of the pie, taking, talking big, saying anything they think will get them ahead. Wow, wow, wow. Saying anything they think that will, they think will get them ahead. I mean, like, I feel like this is the headline of the news. Laura talked about, when we were talking about this, she, she, she was the one that actually found that grumpers, uh, the grumpers and the fault finders here. It's a poisonous element. It's a refusing to consider their own character by attacking others. We have to see these things in tandem, that oftentimes those people who are attacking the characters of others are refusing to look at their own selves. And that's why it goes back to these things. They're like, they're like waves that just leave nothing but shameful foam on the beach. They're not willing to deal with their own stuff. And this is the opposite. I loved the way Laura said it. She said, this is the opposite of discipleship. Y'all, we're not going to disciple people, ourselves, others, by going out and constantly finding faults with others. By constantly attacking others for their behavior. Actually, we are discipling, but we're discipling them in a very toxic way. We're discipling them away from Jesus, not towards Jesus when we do that. Our discipleship always starts with Holy Spirit-inspired, serious self-reflection. Honest assessment of who we are what we are capable of, what we are dealing with. And we, we'll see that played out here as it goes. Um, oh, and this, I, I came across this quote by Henry Nouwen. He said, the temptation to consider power as an apt instrument for the proclamation of gospel is the greatest temptation of all. Now, on this point, I do want to be specific to our current cultural moment. Jesus doesn't need an army to be proclaimed Lord. Our God does not need a political party to go fight for him. We are not going to achieve the righteousness of God by that kind of strife, by that kind of political enforcement. That is not the way of the gospel. That is not the way of the kingdom. And that temptation to power, to use political power or cultural power or economic power to force the gospel, which truly is no gospel at all if it has to be forced, to force that on other people is not of God. I want to be very clear in saying that. 
So then he goes on, but remember, dear friends, that the apostles of our master Jesus Christ told us that this would happen. In the last days, there will be people who don't take, who don't take these things serious anymore. They'll treat them like a joke and make religion, make a religion of their own whims and lust. These are the ones who split churches, thinking only of themselves. There's nothing to them, no sign of the Spirit. But you, dear friends, carefully build yourselves up in this most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit, staying right at the center of God's love, keeping your arms open and outstretched, ready for the mercy of the Master Jesus Christ. This is the unending life, the real life. How different. How utterly 100% different that is from those who would beat you into submission, shame you into submission by your faith. How utterly different it is to with humility constantly be looking towards that mercy that has been already extended towards us. And then listen to this. How, how, again, how different, how countercultural to our entrenched, toxic culture that is out there. He says, go easy on those who hesitate in the faith. What? Go easy on those who hesitate in the faith. Go after those who take the wrong way. Be tender with sinners, but not soft on sin. The sin itself stinks to heaven. So, so what is this action that is being called for here? What is this radically different, radically counterculture way of contending for the faith? When those who profit from religion are out there telling you you have to fight, you have to, you have to demonize an other, you have to condemn, you have to judge, you have to cancel, discount, whatever you want to say about it, others. What, what is the author here asking for? If not mercy. If not grace. If not love. If not a willingness to endure the shame of being called whatever it is that you're going to be called to show this. <clears throat> Mercy like this is the greatest single indicator of a flourishing faith. I would, I, would, I would posit this. That mercy like this may be the single greatest indicator of a flourishing faith. One that refuses to other a person. To dehumanize, to demonize, to destroy another human being. While at the same time refusing... Well, at the same time, this refuses to condone, dismiss, or explain away the destructive behaviors and attitudes. Listen, there are people out there that need to be that need to have the, the, the hurt done to them, the damage done to them, we need to call that out. We need to not shy away from calling out abuse, from calling out the way people are being disadvantaged, taken advantage of, othered and belittled. We need to call that out, but we can't do it in the same way that these other people are doing it. We can't just fight fire with fire. We can't just adopt all the tactics, 
all the othering, all the demonizing, all the dehumanizing. We cannot do that. But at the same time, we still need to call out those offenses. We need to call out the misogyny, the racism, all of these things that are happening, the economic oppression. I said, it's clear, it's clear. And again, you know, just diving back into the Old Testament to teach it. If you cut out every verse on justice out of the Old Testament, you'd have a really slim book. Admittedly, though, this is a narrow path to walk. And it is an ever-changing and challenging task. So where is our hope in all this? Well, we go back to the start. Remember how Jude started? Relax. Everything's going to be all right. Rest. Everything's coming together. Open your hearts. Love is on the way. Listen, we're not going to go out there if we're not full first, if we're not convinced first, if we're not relaxing. We're not resting in this. Again, this is one of the, this is one of the, the things that just is so eye-opening about the Bible is that our God doesn't fight the way other gods do. That we're called into service not to earn anything. We're called into service because we've already been given everything. It's already ours. We already have it with that. And then he ends with this, the benediction. Now to him who can keep you on your feet, standing tall in his presence, fresh and celebrating, to our one God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Master, be glory, strength, and rule before all time and now, to the end of all time, yes. It begins and ends with this promise of what we have already received. That's the foundation. That's the only way it's going to be sustained, y'all. Listen, if we're constantly, precariously wondering, are we going to lose our religion? Are we going to lose our salvation? Are we going to lose God's love? That somehow if I misstep or oversleep or vote wrong or buy wrong or marry the wrong person or go to the wrong thing or act the wrong way, that all of a sudden God is going to stop loving me. That God is going to condemn me, other me, out me, whatever. You're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. That is artificial fruit. That is an industrial churned out product lacking nutrition, flavor, resiliency. But it's hard, isn't it? It's easy to feel overwhelmed. The pressure, the vitriol, the loss, the seemingly endless struggle. I mean, I don't want to meet a downer or anything, but it's tough out there. People are out there claiming all kinds of crazy stuff and using Jesus to justify it. Carrying crosses and using them as weapons and logos on their campaigns for power. Singing hymns as they commit assault and rake in mountains of money. Make no mistake, friends, these people are dead wrong. These are the kind of things that we're warned against in this text. But again, our ultimate hope, we've already been given what we need. And so our fight to contain the faith, in this I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up as we prepare to take communion. As a grace church, we must refuse to surrender the word Christian to those who weaponize it 
for power. We must refuse to surrender the word Christian to those who would use it for political gain, for othering those they are uncomfortable with or just plain hate. We must refuse to let the worst versions of Christianity define the work of Jesus and the church. We must refuse to let the toxic churches be the only or primary expression of what a faith community looks like. We must bear witness to something better, something more life-giving, something more organic, if you will, more hopeful, more beautiful, more resilient, more trusting. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.